brings me enormous joy when the little free beacon who nobody, you know, day to day, like, you know, people aren't opening their free beacon the way talking about it, the way they talk about the New York times. But like, when we have a story that's like really driving national, um, national narrative or like the times is forced to cover it the post is forced to cover it like that's an enormous accomplishment and and to me that is more satisfying than like being the big dog in the room welcome to the love journalism show i'm your host darren samuelson i'm joined today by eliana johnson the editor-in-chief of the washington free beacon and the co-host of the podcast ink stained wretches She's also a former Politico colleague. Hey, Eliana. Hey, Darren. Thanks for having me. It's great to see you again. Um, I wanted to start and introduce you to uh, our uh, listeners. Uh, tell me, why are you a journalist? It's a great question. I, I didn't start out intending to be a journalist, but I, I always had an interest in politics and in writing. And I initially thought I was destined to work in government and, you know, we're kind of two sides of the same coin uh, and wanted to do speech writing. And I was on my parents' couch after I graduated with no job, waiting and waiting and waiting um, for some kind of uh, clearance or I can't rem remember what it was from the Department of Defense to go work there. And I'd written a couple of op-eds. I hadn't been super involved in journalism as an undergraduate, but I'd written a couple of op-eds and Seth Lipsky of the New York Sun, um, which was live at the time in 2006, then shut down and is now up and running again, um, had approached me and said, like, you really belong at the New York Sun. And I blew him off and blew him off and blew him off. Uh, and when I had no other job, like, at, you know, he set force my hand where I took the job I was offered and ended up in New York, not D.C., working at the New York Sun, which, of course, like um, our, our, uh, our former colleague Annie Carney was there with me. And, you know, Ben Smith had been there and Philip Gorovich of The New Yorker. And there were all these people who had been at the Sun, but I didn't know anything about it. Like I wasn't a journalism person. And I remember showing up there and Seth saying, your beat is higher education. And I didn't know what a beat was. And he was telling me to, to make source lunches. And I really had no idea what he, what he was talking about. And I actually quit uh, about two months later to go work at the Council on Foreign Relations. And I remember Seth coming by my desk and he's this old grizzled uh, Wall Street Journal reporter. And he said, I can't believe you're trying to tell me that you're not a newspaper woman. And of course, I this is I ended up back in journalism a couple of years later. So he was right. Um, and I think I think he was able to see what I couldn't because he was a grown up and I was a child that like, um, I like the fast pace of journalism. I like the adrenaline of breaking stories. And now I like seeing that impulse in young people and like fostering it and, and mentoring it. I came for me, I, I, I wanted to be a journalist since I was a little, little kid. And, and there's so many different origin stories of how you end up in the business. But do you think that there's a difference when you don't necessarily start out in journalism, but find your way to it versus like, you know, knowing your whole life that you wanted to do this? I definitely do. Um, you know, when I was at the New York Sun, um, I covered higher education. And part of that was covering um, Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism, which is kind of like the, I, I don't know, like the a lot of like the best journalists have gone to Columbia's graduate school of journalism. And I was able to cover that. And I, I sort of had this thought being 22 that like, there's nothing that they're teaching here that I kind of don't already know. I think it took the, it, it took them this, this idea away from me that like, this was an expert thing 
that you had to go get a PhD in and that only, you know, that you had to be schooled in. Um, I have always felt strongly that like, if you can write and you can think and you're curious, like you can do journalism. And whenever kids come and ask me, like, should I go to journalism school? Always like, this is not rocket science. Like there's a few qualities that you need to have, but you don't need to go to school for this. And I, I think that's what my background it led me like not to venerate the degrees. So you and I were uh, colleagues together uh, at Politico for, um, I guess it was about three, three and a half years there. I'm wondering if you could just uh, talk about how did you end up at Politico? You got there in November of 2016. So that's right after the election, right before the election. Remind me, did you get there after Trump won or, or was it uh, in those days right before, before we, we knew who was going to be the next president? It's a great question. I got there. I arrived after tr Trump won. It was during the transition and before he was inaugurated. Um, but I was actually hired beforehand. Um, I had been at National Review running their Washington office and covering the right. And I think there was a period in which the mainstream newsrooms like Politico or the Washington Post or the Times like felt strongly like we don't really understand the right. We kind of need to recruit reporters who come out of this firmament of like conservative, real conservative journalism. They do understand the different strains on the right a little bit more than we do. Um, Robert Costa was a product of that. He was my predecessor in National Review. And then um, Politico, so Politico had come to me, or I'd interviewed with them once before once before, and not ended up there. And then um, they came to me again with an interest when it was kind of, I'd committed to a certain spending a certain period of time in that position at National Review. And I was ready. I'd been there four years. Um, and then Trump won. And I do remember, um, they'd already hired me, but I do remember getting an email from our former boss, Carrie Budoff Brown. And she was like, can you start now? Um, I wasn't supposed to start for a couple of weeks, but I think that, um, you know, I remember Politico had been staffed for like a Hillary administration and they had built out the whole team. And so I do think Trump's, um, Trump's victory like drove home again, the, the desire of these newsrooms to have people who understood the right. The irony was like for, for those of us on the right, who had come from like, you know, sort of elite conservative world, like we didn't understand Trump either. I didn't know any of these people. And I, to me, the most amusing part was that I had spent three years working at Fox News, and that actually turned out to be the most useful thing to me in terms of covering and reporting on Trump, because Fox News turned out to be so influential in the Trump White House. And that was like this huge leg up for me, but it wasn't any kind of knowledge of the conservative movement. Tell us a little bit about your Politico experience and what it was like covering the Trump White House for Politico in that sort of three year period. I had a wonderful time at Politico. You know, people on the right always ask me, oh, what was it like? Like going into the mainstream and were people hostile and rude? And I'm like, I, you know, I had a wonderful time. Um, and I, I loved being at Politico. Um, and I also spent some time at CNN. Like that was fine too. But Politico, I really loved and loved our editors and bosses. And I loved my colleagues there. And I still am in touch with so many people. I work in the same building. Um, so I had a wonderful time at Politico um, covering the Trump White House. You know, I wasn't initially on the White House team. And again, Carrie, our former boss, said, like, I think you should be on the White House team. And I sort of resisted it. And um, so she she pushed me on to that. And, you know, it was obviously like a once in a lifetime experience in the sense that for me, it was wonderful to get to see, well, how does it 
how does it actually work when the president goes abroad? What's it like to travel with the president? Like, what is, how does this apparatus all work? Um, but I actually found covering the Trump White House to be like a little bit shallow and boring in that, like, there wasn't a lot of, in my view, and it may be that I just wasn't like that good at it, but it w- there was a lot of like petty drama day to day, not a lot of like deep, big things happening. And a lot of it was a fire drill. Like everyone had alerts on their phone for whenever, whatever Trump tweeted. And so I, you know, after three years, I was like, I'm, I'm kind of ready, restless to like do something else. Um, and I rem- like my favorite thing to cover, I think go- going to this point was the Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation, which was like, I think the, one of the handful of things that happened in the Trump administration, like after his inauguration, before he lost the election, that was like, that touched on some real important issues that were happening in this country. And that was like, it was like a privilege to have a front row seat on that. You brought up something a moment ago in terms of uh, mentioning, you know, the recruiting that went on to bring you over to the White House team there. And I, I went through the same thing where uh, Carrie Budock Brown, CBB, as we know her, uh, you know, encouraged me to join that White House team uh, to, to cover Trump, where we had a, a much more uh, a plan there for Hillary's White House that never happened. Uh, and I remember just coming out of that whole period um, where we had a lot of discussion about making newsrooms more regionally diverse, more ideologically diverse, um, being prepared for the possibility that, you know, it's not going to be the conventional wisdom election. And I'm curious, here we are now, seven, eight years later, do you think that the media has done a pretty good job of, of kind of taking those lessons learned from 2016 as we get ready for 2024? Do you see, you know, more regional diversity in newsrooms, more ideological diversity to catch, you know, those trends before uh, the media gets caught uh, flat-footed? I don't. Um, I think it's actually gone in the opposite direction. I think there's less intellectual diversity. I'm not sure about regional diversity, but um, I think that all of these places, you know, I had a wonderful experience at Politico. I'm actually not sure if it would be the same now. Uh, and I've, I've had, I've wondered about that because I think that the places have gotten less tolerant of different ways of thinking. Um, more militant in and it's it's not the managers we're dealing with but it, i think there is like a core of younger folks and i went through this when i guess wrote playbook um and i guess when biden won so it was january 2021 ben shapiro wrote playbook and oh my gosh you know people were sobbing in the politico newsroom and it's like you know he's an important figure on the right and um incredibly influential um with young people on the right and that was like this huge drama in the newsroom, and uh, <laughs> no, I don't think these places have gotten more more tolerant. And um, obviously, Politico or better equipped <laughs> to actually cover cover the right with uh, any kind of nuance. So you left Politico in uh, it was the fall of 2019, um, and you moved to the Free Beacon. Uh, talk first about the detox of going from a reporter to an editor and what's that like to become the editor-in-chief after being a, a reporter on the ground, you know, chasing stories yourself. I would say that the biggest challenge was not going from reporter to editor, like dealing with words and editing copy was like that part 
I don't know, I, I always sort of did it with my own writing and I have a very clear idea of what, what are the elements we need in a story. So it's just as easy for me to do that in my own as it is to tell, you know, another reporter, you should do that or let's, let's put this angle on it. Um, the biggest challenge was going from like just having to think about me and myself and my own work to like managing X number of people and managing an institution and trying to like drive a culture in an institution. And that is like enormously challenging. And I, one of the, I don't know, one of the realizations I had was since, since, you know, we were little kids, people talk about like, oh, so-and-so is a natural leader, like so-and-so has natural leadership skills. And coming into this place, uh, you know, for the first time being like a real management role, I just realized like, I don't think anybody's a natural leader. I don't think anybody naturally knows how to manage. It's really hard. And the only way I think to get good at it is to try to learn it. And to try to get better at it all the time, but like you need help and it's hard work in the same way that like getting to be the best possible reporter is hard work. Uh, So that was the biggest shift for me. I went through my own just about a year after you uh, jumping from reporter to editor and and had a lot of those same growing pains. I'm I'm curious, where did you go to, to, you know, to get help in becoming a first time manager and, and, you know. Was it coaches? Was it mentors? Was it trainings? Was it where, where did you find the resources that you needed? Uh, coach is hugely helpful. Um, executive, I think executive coaching, of course, depends on the person. Um, but uh, also asking, watching other people and how they operate, and then asking, you, you know, there are things that a news organization needs needs to run like there's a whole technical side and newsletters and what's the back end of that like in advertising and things that like i know editorial stuff i don't know any of this whole bucket of other things and so finding a person or people who like that was their expertise and they could you know i could lean on them to help me with that is was also like i think key for me, as opposed to thinking I'm going to become an expert on those things and get really good at those things because I am never going to be good at those things. And and also the best use of my time is like in the editorial space. Explain for folks what the Washington Free Beacon is. I know your your uh, your motto on your on your home site says covering the enemies of freedom the way the mainstream media won't. Uh, pretty provocative uh, uh, mission statement there. Tell, tell everybody what that means. Sure. I, to give a little bit of background, I think the, you know, I took the beacon over from Matt Continetti, who's now a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, but I know that Matt and the others who founded the beacon, um, I think their view was that the right has always um, dominated in the realm of opinion journalism, like Fox News crushes CNN and MSNBC. And Right-wing talk radio is hugely successful in a way that left-wing talk radio, the, the feeble attempts at it, you know, they've never been able to make a go at it. But in terms of reporting, people on the center, the center-right, like, they've never been able to, like, mount a challenge to the left liberal um, institutions. And it really all, you know, a lot of it is in story, it, most of it is in story selection. Um if you read one of the things that struck me um, is since before I get to that. So I would say what the beacon tries to do is like train center right or right wing young people um, in the tools of traditional reporting. 
um, which I think the right is really lacking. And you saw some of that with all this Fox News drama. Um, because we believe strongly, like it's a powerful tool. It's incredibly influential. You know, I've devoted my my career to it. Talk about the transition from being a reporter at Politico to going and and putting on uh, your hat. I mean, I, I was just looking back at how Ben Smith uh, described you as you moved over to the Free Beacon, and you you're going to a. Uh, the lead neoconservative flagship news organization uh, was the way Ben wrote up uh, your uh, move when he was at BuzzFeed. Um, what was that like to go from, you know, a, a partisan, nonpartisan news outlet like Politico to moving over to a neoconservative outlet? You know, interestingly, I went from National Review to Politico and that wasn't that different. Like I found that, you know, at National Review and you're, co you're covering, I was covering the right, like everyone talked to you. And then at Politico, like everyone talks to you because you're at Politico. Um, coming to the beacon where you're coming from the right and covering the left, the level of difficulty to do good reporting goes way up because you're covering people who are hostile to you. There's no such, there's no access journalism and it's um, not uncommon that like people stonewall you and don't respond to your inquiries. So I had come, I think the biggest shift was coming from a world in which like so much of the reporting I did was like source-based and cooperative and like, um, and so it's not so much left, right, but it was like shifting the focus to covering, um, to covering the left and American adversaries um, where there's no level of cooperation with like what we're doing here at the beacon mm. uh, was enormously challenging. What do you think of access journalism? You, you brought it up and, you know, having worked at Politico, you do get your phone calls returned. You do get those opportunities to be places. And I can imagine you end up at the Olympuses of, of journalism at the post and the times and those kinds of things happen even more. So is it more fun to be where you're at now where you're kind of throwing uh, grenades over the wall? It's a good question. I, I really think it depends on who you are. And I found that like, I like to be the underdog and punching above my weight or, you know, we are punching above our weight. So it brings me enormous joy when the little free beacon who nobody, you know, day to day, like, you know, people aren't opening their free beacon the way you're talking about it, the way they talk about the New York times. But like, when we have a story that's like really driving national, um, national narrative or like the times is forced to cover it. The post is forced to cover it. Like that's an enormous accomplishment. And, and to me, that is more satisfying than like being the big dog in the room. But I think it totally depends on your personality and, and temperament for me. Like I'm scrappy and combative. And so I, I think this suits me, this suits me well, but I can absolutely see that it's not, you know, it wouldn't be for, for a lot of other people. So you're the host of Ink Stained Wretches uh, with Chris Stiewalt, uh, who's the News Nation politics editor, former Fox News channel editor, who famously testified uh, in the January 6th committee hearings. I wonder if you could talk about uh, juggling podcasting and your day job, um, something I'm doing now myself and a lot of other journalists do it, too. What's that like that the, the having to have a you know, you got basically two hats that you wear. It's a lot. Of, a lot of journalists are doing that these days. And, and I'd be curious, what, how have you found uh, the juggling? Well, I'd be curious to hear about it from your end as well. Um, for me, it's, you know, since since sitting down for the podcast is 
on my schedule, that part's very easy. It's calendared every week. It's doing the preparation that I think is necessary to have a really quality podcast that I think often, like, I don't get there to my satisfaction because I'm not, like, really combing through everything to the level that I would like to. Um, so, so I think that's the biggest challenge, like sitting down and popping off, you know, anybody can do that. I'm perfectly capable of doing that. Um, but, but it's, it's really the, uh, carving out the quiet time for preparation, um, that is, that is challenging. Can you talk a little about work-life balance for yourself and what tips you've found, uh, juggling, you know, between those two things of, I mean, I'm curious also just coming from your political experience versus now, uh, at the Free Beacon. Uh, Politico is a nonstop 24-7 news operation. We were both probably getting those text messages and notes way into the evenings during the Trump era. Uh, how have you managed to pull it off? Uh, are you still, is it a work in progress? Oh, um, for me, I think my, my husband's a huge part of it. Um, we have a one-year-old and my husband does so much that like it allows me to do my job because there isn't really a balance with this kind of a job. You know, you know that just as well as I do being at, um, being at Politico, but you don't get, um, you don't get everything. You don't get like the to run the organization and have wonderful work-life balance. Like, you know, you just, it doesn't exist. And so for me, it's like, well, my husband's uh, has a more like time limited job, but I don't have that. It's going on at things are going on all the time. I can't like not pick up the phone, you know, if it's ringing. Um, and I think just knowing that like, you don't get every, you, you don't get to have the perfect life and get everything like this is pretty good. I'm lucky to have like somebody who is helpful. And then the other thing um, is, uh, there are advantages to running something in that, like I can, uh, you know, I, I try to be in the office almost every day, um, you know, let's say from 10 to five. Um, but I can also decide not to come in till 10. And I do, um, you know, the, the level of balance I inject is like, I try to be home by six and spend some time with my daughter. Um, so those are things I can do, um, to, it's not really, it's not balanced, but like I have some autonomy given my position. Nobody's demanding that I sit behind a desk. Has it gotten easier for you the longer into your career that you've gone? I, I'm not sure I would say that. I think like having a child, um, you know, it was so easy like before, before kids um, because like what was there really to balance? Like get home whenever and hang out with my husband or, you know, hang out with my boyfriend, your fiance or whatever. Um, and it's just different now. Like I think it's more challenging because um, I need to be, you know, she goes to bed at seven. I want to be there for some time before seven. And, and that's like a new challenge. And then also the thing that changes is like, you don't sleep in, like there's no such thing as like making it up on the weekends. And so it really does like add a level of discipline that like wasn't there before in terms of like scheduling and, um, but, but it's, it's good. Like it's, I think, I think that that's wonderful. It's been a tough week in journalism. Uh, we saw Buzzfeed news, uh, shut down after 12 years or announced that they're shutting down. Uh, my former uh, employer insider lays off 10% of its workforce. Uh, you know, just going back over the last couple of weeks, months, ABC, NBC, NPR, CNN, The Washington Post, Vox, Gannett, I could keep going. Uh, 
give me your sense of like, where do you think the media is in terms of like a profession and getting into it these days? Would you, if you were 21 and, and coming out of college, would you want to get into journalism right now? What advice are you giving journalists who are coming into the business, seeing sort of this complete upheaval in where the jobs are? I don't think journalism is that different from other industries in that you see layoffs across a whole set of industries right now. It's like a function of the um, economic downturn. Um, And I think people are expecting some sort of a recession. Um, I also think it's similar in that, um, you know, I thought about going to law school at one point and it's like a lot of people say, well, like, don't go to law school. Like, what are you going to do after law school? And it's like, if you're the best journalist, like you're never going to want for a job and you're never going to, you're never going to want for money and you're always going to be able to write books and do TV contracts. And the same, it's like, if you're the best kind of lawyer, like you're always going to have success and opportunities and all that. I think the challenge is like figuring out how hard really is it to like, how hard really is it for you personally to distinguish yourself in this field? And like, what are the prospects? Um, what are the prospects if you do so? Um, so it's hard to give anybody blanket advice because, you know, for the most talented um, and most connected kids, like they're going to be very successful. Um, and, but I, I think that's true in like lots and lots of um, industries right now. What do you make of um, I also Good. Oh, I, I was actually going to say something about the Buzzfeed thing, which I think you were going to ask about is, you know, um, there's so much upheaval in the way like people are consuming information and receiving information. And there always seems to be like this hot new trend with it. Um, my personal view is like pretty, um, pretty pessimistic in that, like, I don't really think there's a great way to make a buck with journal, like through journalism, the way that these places are doing it, like the times is doing it through cooking and wordle. Like they're not doing it through their journalism. Axios and Semaphore are doing it through an events business that has not that much to do with journalism, um, you know, and a lot of these places, you know, they're they're inking advertising deals with unsavory people and partners. Um, those are their money makers. It is not the quality journalism. And I just think there's been like a reluctance publicly to say, like, there is not a way to make money through journalism. Now there's these attempts at subscription websites, like we'll see what, you know, Substack, we'll see what happens with that. But like, I'm pretty pessimistic about the ability to make money based on just quality journalism without attaching these other businesses and like putting lipstick on the pig. Hmm. Uh, Twitter, just removing blue checks from everyone today. I, I saw yours is gone now. Uh, and uh, mine, mine disappeared yesterday too. Um, is it getting harder for journalists to get their message out? Um, you know, you lose the check mark. Uh, definitely noticing, you know, impressions on on tweets um, is way less than it was. And that's probably as well, you know, when you're at Politico, I think you do have a fire hose to the world. But give me your sense of what it's like to just get your message out there these days via social media. I honestly do not spend a lot of time on social media. Um, and I've just resisted like the impulse to monitor these things obsessively. So like, I think I said on our podcast, like, I don't care about these blue checks. I don't, I hope Twitter becomes less important. I just, um, I, I can't stand it. Um, and, uh, I, 
what I tell young people, like the kids at the beacons, like I still think if you do quality reporting and you break a story, you're going to get noticed. And that is way more valuable than like putting out your takes on Twitter. Um, that is where I would spend time and energy is like reporting a good story. That's going to drive. It's going to be valuable to people, like tells people something they didn't know. How much news do you consume in the course of a day? What are you reading? What's your favorite uh, websites besides the free beacon? Uh, it's a great question. And actually podcasts have become a huge source of news for me. So I'm a huge fan of the commentary podcast, like put that on in the morning. And I feel like I get a ton of news that way. Um, and I read all because we do this podcast that's about uh, media. Like I read all the mainstream stuff, all of the newsletters, playbook and Axios and, um, and I love the media. So I read the media stuff like semaphores media column. And but it's like hate reading CNN's, uh, CNN, whatever, reliable sources. Uh, and I'm not recommending it to people like I do it because it's my business. I don't, you know, hardly recommend that. Uh, I, I, I wish I had like wonderful, unique uh, reading recommendations, but I, I don't really. Um, I feel like I, I read what everybody else reads. What's the biggest surprise so far in your career that you didn't expect once you got started? Uh, I think that if you had told me when I got started that like I would end up at Politico and I would do all the Sunday shows and, you know, have a TV contract and then be like, this is not really that fulfilling or that like it's fine, but it's I haven't reached like the, um, you know, some apex where this is going to want what I'm going to be wanting to do the rest of my life. Um, that was shocking to me. And I think I, I'm grateful to have been able to do that and then realize like, oh, these people are just like everybody else. And to be able to like, go do something a little bit more cause driven that like I'm passionate about it to, uh, you know, I, I went to Yale undergrad, like I was someone who was very obsessed with these elite brand names, um, to, to be able to shed that is like very liberating. How excited are you for 2024 and the presidential campaign ahead? Are you, do you wish it was here already? Uh, it's, we've got a long way to go. Oh, kind of dreading it, to be honest, um, given our positioning on the center right. But I do think that um, the Biden campaign and, and administration will be fascinating to cover. And I think the most undercovered story is like, and I'm told, you know, people who in positions like yours tell me it's impossible to get is like the management of his decline by this coterie of people around him. And I think that's a story no one's really gotten to. But but like we're all witnessing it. We just don't quite know the mechanics of it. Um, and that that's um, that's very interesting to watch. I'm not sure it's really ever happened. You think America's ready for, you know, a 70? I'm not sure how old will Donald Trump be. Uh, it's going to be about 75, 76 and an 81 year old uh, running for, running against each other <laughs> in uh, in a general potentially. Uh, I mean, it's hard to imagine the person who would make Trump look like a fountain of youth, but like Biden pulls it off somehow. Um, he is an old uh, 78 or whatever age he is. And, and Trump is like a relatively young or, you know, he seems vital, uh, however, um, he somehow seems vital. And, um, I, I was with somebody who, who saw him the other week. He was at actually, uh, I was with somebody who saw him at Mar-a-Lago the day before he flew out to be, um, arraigned and 
said, this guy's having the time of his life. Like for all these, you know, all these other candidates, DeSantis and Haley and Pompeo, you know, whatever, Pompeo is not a candidate, but for all these other guys, Pence, like this, it's hard work for them. And like for Trump, he's having the time of his life. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's interesting observation. It says something about uh, what you can do when you don't have a job. Uh, You definitely uh, have a little bit more freedom. Yeah. Eliana, thank you so much for joining uh, the Love Journalism Show and telling us a little bit more about uh, your career and and your views on, on the media business. Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me.